It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Buckeye Talk is brought to you by shopohiostate.com and the Ohio State University Barnes & Noble Bookstore. For the finest Ohio State gear and apparel, Go to the store on High Street or visit shopohiostate.com. Great discounts, great stuff at shopohiostate.com and minutemantickets.com. Concerts, theater tickets, sporting events, whatever you need, it's national selection with a local feel. Make our ticket guys your ticket guys with minutemantickets.com. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. Douglas Maurice, Bill Landisari, Wasserman, and the big news of the day. Obviously, the the idea that Nick Bosa's college career is over. So, guys, let's dive right in. Um, Bill. What did you think when you heard that Nick Bosa was no longer going to play football for Ohio State? I, I think it's a tough loss, but I think Dwayne Haskins and this offense are good enough that they can. this team can still be still be pretty good, even though they lost a big impact player on defense. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that makes sense. I think it certainly puts a little more on the offense, right? But Dwayne Haskins, I think, has proven they can handle that. Um, and Ari, like on the defensive side of the ball... Who who are some of the people that you think need to to step up, knowing that Nick Bosa is not coming back? Well, I think Chase Young should step up, and uh, he needs to do better. But I I think they're not going to really recover from uh, Nick Bosa's loss. But yeah. I think if if Chase Young works a little bit harder, maybe they can. Yeah. No. I mean, I think it's hard. Do you guys and Bill do, like Bill? Would you still consider Ohio State the Big Ten favorite, or now knowing that Nick Bosa? is not going to be there for the Michigan game, do you think maybe Michigan becomes the Big Ten favorite? Um, I still I still think Ohio State's the favorite. I mean, they beat Penn State without Nick Bosa, and I personally think that Penn State is better than Michigan, so I think they'll be able to beat Michigan still without Nick Bosa. No, I think that makes sense. And before we... Okay, we, we okay, gotta, okay. Enough. I just, one more thing. I just wanted to ask Ari if you would put bacon on a taco. Ari, would you put bacon on a taco? Uh... I think it sounds weird, but I would for sure do it because bacon goes on everything. You know what else yeah. sounds weird? What? You what? pretending that our children are your work but, children, Bill and Ari. This is but, sad. This is pathetic. This is beneath even you. But I just needed someone to talk to. Well, okay. Nobody will talk to me anymore. 
because you're a little... Do you guys mind? Do you guys mind? Can you just be Bill and Ari? I'm getting paid, right? No, you're... No, you're not getting paid. I'm leaving. You're leaving. Okay, that was Ari. That's Daria, who actually has Ari, like, in her name. So she's Daria. Bill slash Kira, are you in or no? To sit down I, in the basement and let your dad yell at you think, on a weekly I think basis. I'm gonna have to be out. Yeah. You're out. Why is everyone always out? I mean, do we really want to go down this? Yes. Road? Why is everyone abandoning me? Listen to the volume of your voice. It's just right now. It's just emotion. It's a little much. It's a little much. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I'll figure something else out then. You're gonna have to. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe some therapy? Yeah, I'll find someone to talk to. We could bring the dog down. She won't contribute much, but she would be happy to be here. Okay, um, we'll try this again. We'll figure it out. Stick around at uh, at cleveland.com and on Buckeye Talk. We'll we'll be back in a minute. (laughs) All right, I wasn't proud of that. I was a little desperate, um, but I'm not desperate anymore. This is the new version of Buckeye Talk. I am Douglas Maurice. You are the same people who have been listening for one, two, three, four years now. And I love you even more than I loved you before because we're going to get through this. And you know what? It's going to be good. It's going to be good. And I'm going to give you a little update. And then we're going to get to our co-host. It's not just me. We have a co-host. But first I want to say... Cleveland.com wishes the best of luck to Bill Landis. Um, We are moving on hiring a replacement. There is going to be a replacement. I'm not 100% sure when. I'm not 100% sure who. But we're working on it. So the idea of like me kind of doing this Ohio State thing by myself for a little bit on the podcast and otherwise, um, I don't think it's going to last really long. Okay, and so if you find me tiresome, hopefully you'll find me less tiresome when we get another voice in here, because we think that's important. We think these guys are good. So you can follow me on Twitter at Doug Maurice. You can follow the Buckeye Talk podcast still on Twitter at Buckeye Talk Pod. Okay. Um, you can still send the emails. Bill ran the email account and gave me the password. Um, we'll get to some more emails. We've been a little lagging with the emails lately, but we'll get to that. But I'm going to save some stuff for the end of this podcast because i got to tell you something about Purdue that I think um, and a couple other things, but I want to get to the thrust of this, right? And that is a full, normal Buckeye talk with the co-host, and it's Chad Peltier. He writes about the Buckeyes. His dad went to Ohio State. Uh, He's very interested in Ohio State. He's a super smart dude who lives in Atlanta. You might have read him at Land Grant Holy Land or Football Outsiders. So we did a Buckeye Talk, right? It's a normal Buckeye Talk. And if you liked it before, you'll like it now. He's got some really um, good in-depth numbers that he used a lot in some of his answers. Um, and so so I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel a little different than the complete buffoonery of a typical Buckeye Talk where we're just blathering. There's more facts and information here, and I know for some of you that may be hard to get used to, but it's good. He's good. We had a good time. This is some really good football talk about this team, and then I'm going to come back at the end with one more thought on Purdue and a little update, and then we're going to move on into the future um, with Buckeye Talk. 
with Ohio State coverage at Cleveland.com with you guys along for the ride. Thanks as always. Let's get to Buckeye Talk. First, though, a quick word about our friends at ShopOhioState.com. What would you do if I didn't say ShopOhioState.com in a podcast? You'd be lost. You know what they got going on right now? Sweat sale, 25% off all sweats at ShopOhioState.com right now. That, of course, is the website of the Ohio State University Barnes & Noble Bookstore. You can find them on High Street in their beautiful store with the great big windows. But if you can't get there, go to the website. They got so many sweatshirts with so many different fonts. I love fonts. Who loves fonts? People love fonts. They got like the old English script. They got block lettering. They got the traditional Ohio State block O. They got cursive swoopy stuff. They've got red. They got a lighter red. They got dark gray. They got light gray. They got white. All this stuff, it's 25% off. So if you want a a premium crew sweatshirt with the letters sewn on, that's normally $59. Now it's $44. If you want like a fleece kind of zip up thing, right? Quarter zip with the little Ohio State logo uh, up on the left side. Usually 55, that's 41, okay? Nike Youthy hoodie, Nike Youth hoodie. Normally 50, now it's 38. All this discounted merchandise on the best stuff. It's not like they're getting rid of stuff. They're giving you a good deal on the best stuff. A Nike men's full zip hoodie, 85 bucks down to 64. Great deals, go now. Admire the fonts, admire the sweats, 25% off right now from our inaugural sponsor at Buckeye Talk, the Barnes & Noble Ohio State University Bookstore, and shopohiostate.com. All right, people, so we're doing this. I wasn't going to make you listen to just me ranting for two hours, even though there was like one or two people who said they'd be okay with that. That was strange to me. Nobody should have to suffer through that. So we have a real live, not guest, not guest, guest co-host, because that's how much I think of Chad Peltier and the work he does on the Buckeyes. So Chad is in Atlanta, which means he cannot smell the farts in my basement, but we have a good, strong audio connection, and Chad is here to co-host Buckeye Talk. So welcome in, Chad. Thanks, Doug. Happy to be here. Are you really happy to be here, or did you just listen to that intro and you're like, oh my God, what have I done? Well, you know, I think you have to say something like that when you get introduced, but yeah, yeah I genuinely am happy to be here. Well, we are excited to have you here, so let let the people know as we get into this, and we're going to dive right into Nick Bosa and the defense here. Let the people know sort of your background um, following Ohio State, covering Ohio State. Give them the bona fide so they know how smart you are. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've been writing about Ohio State and college football overall for five going on six years now. Um, actually, one of my very first experiences as an Ohio State blogger was at Big Ten Media Days uh, and interviewing players. I think it was Etienne Sabino and, and Urban Meyer's first year. Wow. Um, yeah, okay. so that was that was hitting the ground running for sure. Um, but I, I've always kind of focused on the statistics side of things, advanced stats, um, writing currently for Land Grant Holy Land, where I've been for about three or four seasons now. I've written for Football Study Hall at SB Nation, and I also write an article um, every week for Football Outsiders, too. And you build 
devastating monster killer robots for a secret <laughs> intelligence agency that you can't tell us about, right? Well, honestly, hopefully it's the, the opposite. Hopefully I'm doing a very small part in preventing killer robots from uh, hurting anybody. Yeah, but see, that's what everybody <laughs> says. Everybody thinks they're building the nice robot. They're not building the killer robot. But every time I see a robot on Twitter, Twitter, it looks like it wants to kill me. So let me ask you this before we get into football, because you are a robot expert. I think Boston Dynamics, this company that keeps, there's always, people always send me stuff on Twitter and I love it. Every time there's a dog-shaped robot climbing up steps, there was a dog-shaped robot dancing to Uptown Funk that someone sent me today. There are robots climbing through windows and climbing stairs. I think those are fake, Chad. I think those are are CGI things some kid in his basement is making up and that Boston Dynamics doesn't even exist because there's no way that robots could actually do that. Am I on to something? Parkour. I think the video came out like yesterday. Yeah. Parkour yeah. robot? Parkour robot? That's not real. Uh, I, I wish I could... Uh could say the same and say that it's not real but yeah i i don't know i don't know about this i i, I think we just have to hope that they're used for good things like finding bombs and and things like that but why would someone make a robot dog that dances to uptown funk how does that help the world chad that just seems to be taunting me uh honestly i think boston dynamics is specifically taunting you there yes. there is no other reasonable explanation yeah there i I don't mind robots that do things that I don't want to do, like find bombs. But I don't want a robot just running around, taunting me, doing human-like activity that doesn't really actually seem to serve a purpose. And I feel like that's what they do, Chad, and that's what makes me nervous. Um, all right. People don't want to hear me talk about that, even though I want to talk about robots with you for two hours. So let's get right into this. On a scale of 1 to 10... Right? One is like, they're fine, they'll be okay. Ten is freak out, there's no way that they can get where they want to get as a team. How big of a loss do you think Nick Bosa is for the season? Now that we know that his Ohio State career is over, the idea that he is not going to be back for Michigan State or Michigan or the Big Ten title game or the playoff, how freaked out should Ohio State fans be that this is like a thing that that is going to keep Ohio State from making a serious playoff run? One to ten. Yeah, so, I mean, I try to be pretty measured in all my writing and things like that. Uh, just kind of go on what the data says. But, um, I, I mean, uh, right now I would say probably in the five to six range. Okay, okay. Um, I think that's right. Yeah, so I, pretty much my, my answer is based on the numbers this year in terms of sacks and havoc that we're creating are pretty similar to last year's overall but my concern is number one um the we're, we're kind of in, in the lull of the schedule right yep. in terms of uh, opponent difficulty and we were kind of in the back of our heads thinking oh you know nick bose is going to come back right in time for uh, michigan and then probably wisconsin and whoever comes after that so I think that, that that's a real concern now. Um, what happens if the defense can't create as much havoc against the top in offensive lines that we're going to see? Um, I, I think that that's a real concern, even though the numbers are fairly consistent, even in Nick Bosa's absence. Okay, because that's the thing, like, 
and this was what we were going to lead with anyway, is the explosion plays I was talking about last week and that you were so kind to chime in on on Twitter, that, that I think the saving grace of this defense has been that they give up yards. Um, they sometimes give up like giant plays, like the 93-yard touchdowns. Those aren't great. Um, but for instance, against Minnesota last week, it was much more about giving up yards but not giving up points. They are 24th in the nation in points allowed per game. And I think they're 58th in yards allowed per game. So they're giving up more yards than they are points. But you don't get bonus points for points, if that makes sense. You don't get bonus points for points. Okay, it's about the scoreboard at the end. And I asked Urban Meyer about this this week, about the idea of, you know, you gave up 14 last week. You had the interception by Kendall Sheffield. You had the interception by Isaiah Pryor. You had the fumble by Minnesota in the middle of the field. Like, can you count on that? Is there some secret coaching thing where they go in a dark room and say to each other, we're going to get turnovers, it'll be okay. And they understand they're going to give up yards sometimes because they know we might give up explosive plays, we might give up yards, but we will create our own explosive plays with the pass rush, with guys making plays in the secondary. And I think maybe that is a reasonable way to go about things, given the realities of college football in the modern era with the way offenses work and given the realities of their personnel. But if they're going to give up the explosions and they want to create their explosions, they have now lost their number one explosion creator. So I want to get into these explosion numbers with you, but I guess it's kind of what you were saying the idea of maybe, all right, well, maybe we can't give up quite as many big plays because we don't think we're going to create as many big plays because Nick Bosa is the guy who was going to create the most amount of big plays. Do you think maybe they're going to have to think about defense differently, Chad? Yeah, so that was that was something interesting. Um, since Bosa went out, and I mean really before that, we've noticed how close the linebackers have played to the defensive line. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they've... Like you and Bill talked about over the last couple of weeks, they've kind of been playing close to the line to defend against the run, and sometimes they've come on blitzes as well, even on passing downs. Um, so one of my concerns really with Bosa being out and not coming back is that they're going to continue to do that and risk allowing plays, efficient plays, because they're vacating the middle of the field, even on passing downs when you might expect those guys to drop into a run or at least feign dropping and yeah. uh, dropping, right? You, you know, it, it doesn't have to be so predictable all the time where you, if you see pressure coming, it's definitely going to come. So so what would you do, Chad? Like what, what – I think they need to change a little bit. And here's the hard thing, right? I thought last week – and I just saw someone tweet this out like on the Big Ten conference call. Apparently Jeff Brom said that Ohio State – um, will take away the short passes, but it leaves them vulnerable for some big plays. And I thought last week was the exact opposite of that. I thought they changed things a little bit, and that clearly what drove people nuts was giving up these little slants in the middle of the field. And Alex Grinch, after the game, and I wrote it, said, I don't know that the slant beats you. I'm not sure the slant loses you games. It drives you crazy to give up 11, 12, 9, 16, and we saw it all day. But does that lose you games? Because I do feel like they played a little bit different coverage. I thought Kendall Sheffield's first pick on the first series, 
he tilted his body in a different way where he wasn't squared up to the man and he it allowed him to run with the receiver down the field with his eye back to the quarterback more rather than having to flip his hips and turn his back and run with the guy he was at more of an angle now if you play that coverage though I think it leaves you open to if the guy gets inside leverage on you he's going to hit you for a slant because you're letting you're turning your body and giving something up. So I feel like the play that Kendall Sheffield made on the pick is exactly related to the slants they gave up all day. But in the end, they only gave up 14 points. So I'm kind of wondering if the idea of, you know what, maybe we'll take a little less risk, we'll try to take away the deep ball, we'll give up these slants that drive everybody crazy, But in the end, we think we can make plays, we can force turnovers, and yeah, they gave up two really long drives, but in the end, they gave up 14 points, and I felt like that was a little bit a nod to a little bit of a change in their coverage style. So Chad, would you do that? Would you do something? Whether it's the style of coverage in man, whether it's maybe going to zone a little bit more, would you do something to maybe try to give them shorter stuff Take away the big stuff because again, maybe you can't get you can't count on the pass rush getting there, and you don't want to leave yourself vulnerable to a deep ball. So you'll allow them to throw eleven yard slants all day. Yeah, so I, I think that uh, what you just identified uh, with Sheffield is is pretty key here. Um, and and I, I mean, I would look for two things. I would at least try two things and see how it how it sticks. Um, but one thing that we noticed last week too was with uh, Isaiah Pryor. There was one play, I think it was like a third and nine in the red zone. Um, Pryor was lined up pretty far off of Tyler Johnson, I think. Right? Okay. Yeah, he was he was the Minnesota receiver who had about 119 yards. Um, so he was he was lined up pretty far off of Johnson, uh, and he, Johnson was able to catch a slant and convert that third third and nine. So. I think that that's another example of them playing a little bit farther back mm-hmm. with, with a safety who may not be as good uh, in in man coverage, right, compared to someone like Sean Wade. So if Pryor's out there, I could see keeping at least a, a few of those guys who are maybe a little less skilled in the man coverage back a little bit further and being like, okay, you know what, we're going to concede these underneath routes if we have to. Um because we think eventually we're going to be able to put them beyond behind uh, behind the ball, right? With and yep. create a negative play. So I think that, that that's a fair that's a fair tactical change to make. But I would experiment a little bit more with how they use the outside linebackers. Um, it, it sounded like when I think you were talking to Pete Werner, mm-hmm. and he was a little, sound, maybe sound a little bit frustrated with how he definitely. was used schematically. Definitely. Is that right? and, and it's weird, like, Chad, he's a young guy, right? And he's not complaining. Yeah. He's a second-year guy. He's not going to complain. But I thought there was palpable, tangible frustration of sort of like, what are we supposed to do? And it's the idea of, I feel like no matter what I do, I'm wrong. And you sort of sense that in that video too, huh? That the idea of you just get caught in between all the time. Right. Right. Yeah. So it seems like they could do a little bit more to shade him a a little bit farther off the ball uh, to to kind of cloud some of those obvious passing lanes. Because Minnesota's quarterback – Every on every single one of those RPO passes, just had a clear window, right? Clear. And, oh. and, 
if he had a little, if he just had to think for half a second longer about whether that was going to be open, or if you know, oh maybe he, you know Pete Werner is close to the line, but he could drop back on the occasional zone blitz, um, you, you know maybe that would just be the half second delay that the defensive line needs to actually get to and affect the quarterback. And I did think, and and, and uh, this is one of those where I'm, I'm, uh, you know what? I, I usually say like I'm bad at my job. I'm not going to give myself that criticism this week. I'm just busy at my job. I'm legitimately trying to do like three things at once because we're down some people at the moment. But I have not gone back and rewatched on film Justin Hilliard swatting down the third down slant. Oh um, yeah, that was good. The, like that was fine. It felt like. Slant worked, slant worked, slant worked, slant worked. And then like the 11th time, it didn't work. And it changed It changed the game. If th- I think that was open again. And if Hilliard doesn't get his hand on that ball, that might be a go-ahead touchdown for Minnesota. Instead, they end up trying to kick a field goal. Like it felt like maybe, I don't know if that was an adjustment. And, and like here's the part where I say, hey, guest host who's not being paid, did you do more work on this did I, than I did? Did you happen to rewatch the Hilliard SWAT? I, I wish I could say I did. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, no, but, I, I didn't. But, I don't uh, know if that was like a great individual effort or if that was something more like you just mentioned, them coming to a realization with an alignment to shade a guy a certain way that finally gives him a chance to get in the passing lane, Right. Right. Yeah, and I think my big concern looking forward without Bosa is whether the, the defensive staff and, and Shiano in particular is is thinking, you know what, we're not able, we're not going to be able to get enough pressure with just the D line. And so far, they've shown a willingness to bring extra guys and use the linebackers uh, for blitzes. And, and I'm wondering if they're going to continue that strategy uh, in, in a way that still leaves the, the middle of the field open for passes. Um, and I guess my concern there is, I, I think Grinch is, is right that, you know, most of the time, even an 11 yard slant, isn't going to beat you. Yeah. But enough of those being able to string drives together is, is what hurts you in the end. Because the primary thing that determines games either way, just just according to running the numbers over and over again in, in, in simulations, is efficiency. So whether that efficiency is coming from a slant route or from, from the running game, it, it's still an efficient offense. So if you're continuing to allow these plays, that puts a lot of stress in the defense's ability to finish drives or to prevent touchdowns in the red zone. And I'm not totally convinced that the defense is excellent in that regard. I will say the one thing, Chad, and it feels, I don't feel like the linebackers get home very much when they do come. That's the part of it that's frustrating is like, you will see times when Pete Werner or Malik Harrison or Tuff Borland are up in a gap and they're hedging up. And then the snap of the ball Sometimes it feels like they'll take a couple steps towards the line, then drop back, but they're still throwing over their head. It feels like they're never really affecting the quarterback on a blitz or anything. I feel like part of it is like the idea of, well, you end up with a choice on every play. If I come up, they throw over me. If I stay back, they run. I just feel like there's too many plays where they end up not affecting the play either way. Because I feel like there have been times, too, where there have been some maybe some wide runs or some wide short throws where they end up trying to chase on a guy, and it's like, where is everybody on this side of the field? And it's like, oh, the linebacker, the outside linebacker on this side, he's stepped up in a gap between the end and the tackle 
really did nothing to affect the play, and now he's not here to try to help track down this guy in space on his side of the field. So I feel like that's part of it too, and I think maybe that's what a part of Werner's frustration is. I feel like their linebackers haven't made as many plays as you're used to seeing Ohio State linebackers make, but I think as part of it is because they're constantly in a position where they don't have a chance to make plays because they're halfway between stopping the run or defending the pass, and they wind up doing neither. Right. Right. One of the things that I've been wondering is uh, I I kind of expected, like I think that you and Bill did, why hasn't Darren Browning been at least tried to play outside in just a more see ball, get ball kind of mode, right? Where you can just be cut loose and and kind of rush the passer or or be that guy who's – just there for havoc plays. And we haven't really seen that as much as I expected to. Um, and, and I wonder if they want him to eventually grow into something like a Roquan Smith in the middle of the field where he can just be the homing missile. But I, I think that they really miss somebody like that on, on the edge who really does get home like Darren Lear or Jerome Baker did over the last couple of years. Yeah, it's hard because I think I think in our heads, Chad, I think everybody listening to this, we have an idea in our heads of what Ohio State linebackers look like, right? And to me, this is very simplistic, but I'm a simplistic man. I'm a simple man. I wake up in the morning, I eat a piece of sourdough bread and four slices of bacon, and then I go in my basement and write about football for 12 hours. I'm a simple man. This is my simple breakdown of 14 seasons of covering Ohio State football. To me, there's the kind of linebacker who is like a James Laurinaitis, um, Raquan McMillan linebacker, who I feel like a lot of the times they're just there in the middle of the defense, they're diagnosing, and then they're going and tackling a guy. They're filling a hole. They know what's coming before it happens. You're not asking them to move around all the time. It just feels like to me when I have James Laurinaitis in my head, he's in the middle of the defense surveying the whole field figuring out what the offense is going to do and then he goes and stops it right and that you're not like all the the Ohio State linebackers are constantly on the move before the snap I feel like they don't have the chance to sit and diagnose and then the second linebacker to me is Darren Lee Jerome Baker Ryan Shazier these guys who are just out in the open field dragging people down blitzing and getting home sometimes but they're just in space and if they're in space with you you're dead and I feel I, I just don't feel any of that. I don't feel any of that. And when you look at Baron Browning as a five-star recruit, you know they're playing him in the middle, which is more like the McMillan Laurinaitis role. And it's like, man, man, like you said, maybe he could be on the outside in the sort of track down ball carriers role, like a Lee or a Shazier. And and part of it, I don't know where you are on this chat. And again, you're not getting any money for this, so you don't have to openly criticize coaches like I do because I get paid to criticize coaches. But I don't trust Bill Davis. To, to use the personnel the right way. And if we're sitting here after seven games saying, man, I wonder why they're playing this guy this way. This doesn't seem to be working. I wonder why they aren't using this guy differently. This doesn't seem to be working. That, to me, is the story of Bill Davis's two-year tenure. Yeah, so uh, I... I have some some stats here about the linebackers Uh, and you know it's it's tough to to kind of reduce a player's performance an individual player's performance beyond skilled players to a single number especially on defense but there are some numbers uh that bill Connolly has has created that i think could be helpful to to talk about the linebackers um 
So there's a concept called marginal efficiency, and essentially it's the success rate of the plays where whatever defender you're talking about, uh, what, how successful those plays are where they're involved. Um, so essentially, if a defender is involved in a play that has a positive success rate, that means that the opposing offense was able to get a good game that moved the chains, essentially. So you would want a linebacker with a very low, a negative marginal efficiency. Okay. Because the marginal efficiency is adjusted for down distance and field position. I know I've lost like maybe 60% of the listeners here. No, no, no. <laughs> negative is good. We're with you. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, if this is boring, I apologize. Oh, we love first. this stuff. <laughs> it's confusing. If you're a listener out there and you're confused right now, what's confusing you is facts and information. That's not what you're accustomed to on Buckeye Talk, but please enjoy it while you get it. Go ahead, Chad. Yeah, so um, looking at the marginal efficiency numbers and even just the yards per play numbers for the individual linebackers, uh, the lowest marginal efficiency, so the best, uh, for the team is very clearly Malik Harrison. He has a negative 17.9% marginal efficiency. That makes sense Uh, to me. That's what my guess would be. Yeah, and I think a lot of times these advanced stats can be good tests for what your eyes see. You know, start with what your eyes see and then try to use the stats to either say yes, this agrees, or no, it doesn't. I need to rethink what my eyes are telling me. But yeah, so second is Pete Werner at negative 16.7. But the lowest... The lowest-ranked linebacker of the five that have played the most snaps is actually Baron Browning, uh, with only a negative 6.7%. He also has the highest yards per play allowed on plays where he is the tackler, uh, with an average of 4.5 yards per play where he tackles somebody. Um, Obviously, these stats don't account for plays where player doesn't end up making the tackle at all and someone else makes the tackle um which is a key mission but uh to the best that we can measure these things it it really seems like the the outside linebackers have made the most difference uh, out of the whole linebacker core that and i think they did miss harrison last week and i think that's a big a big guy to get back this week and and the idea of this defense needing to get healthy. Nick Bosa was part of that. We know that's not going to happen. But to have Jonathan Cooper back at end against Purdue this week, Urban Meyer says he'll be back. Malik Harrison back at starting outside linebacker. I don't know. Again, part of it is how you play these guys. But if they're throwing slants and putting pressure on outside linebackers to make decisions or try to guess what to do, Malik Harrison's your best cover linebacker. He's your best linebacker overall. So the idea that they were hitting some throws in the middle of the field – I, that seems to me like a thing that maybe Malik Harrison can help with that. One guy maybe doesn't stop it by himself, but he's just a very good, I think, instinctual player in the past game. We saw the pick he made against TCU to ice that game. I think he's he's their best chance out there, and I'm very curious to see what they do against Purdue with, um, you assume they're going to maybe be in nickel a lot, that, that Sean Wade's going to be locked up on some of their slot guys and covering, but you know Malik Harrison, he's always in there on nickel anyway. He's, he's going to probably play every snap. Um, Malik Harrison's going to be locked up in coverage, and, and that's a guy that when he's not there, you miss him. So that does not surprise me that Malik Harrison is, is the best-ranked linebacker on that list. Overall, Chad, those numbers you cited, are those pretty good numbers or like compared to other teams in the Big Ten or other teams around the country? Are there a lot of linebackers who rate better by that stat? 
So we, we don't have uh, just a full list of every linebacker. The, the data set just isn't built like that. Um, but we do have just overall numbers for how much havoc they create or oh. essentially how many uh, explosion plays that they create. Explosion. Um, yeah, so what goes into to havoc rate is tackles for loss, sacks, and interceptions, fumbles forced, and passes defensed. So those five things go into havoc rate. And Ohio State's linebackers rank 30th overall in, okay. in Havoc Rate. And I think that that's, that's probably, that, that's kind of roughly where I would imagine them to rank around the country. Okay, so let's talk Havoc Rate. Let's talk more of these explosion plays. And then, guys, we're going to get to some of your questions. We have all your questions about everything going on with this team. Um, but I wanted to get some final explosion numbers. So in terms of the defense overall, Chad, what are Ohio State's Havoc or, and again, you guys, since you're coming on this podcast for no money, you may use, if you guys want to change the term from havoc rate to explosion rate, I will grant you the usage of explosion rate um, awesome. if you want to use that. What is Ohio State's overall explosion rate as a defense? Are, are, they, are they pretty good when it comes to all that stuff you just mentioned? Yeah, so, uh, I, I mean, there's two parts of explosions, right? So there's the allowing ex- explosive plays, and then there's creating them. Yes. In terms of, they're very good in one and not the other, and it's pretty obvious which which is which. Um, so their overall havoc rate or, or explosion rate is fourth in the country. Which is really um, that, good! That, that's Yeah, it's absolutely elite, and what, what, I mean, honestly, kind of what we would expect them to be. They were actually third in Havoc rate last year with all of those senior defensive ends. So, I mean, I mean, I, I honestly expected that number to improve a little bit with a healthy Nick Bosa. Um, but, yeah, it's still really good uh, overall. And there's, in terms of just distilling it down to creating sacks, they're 15th in passing overall, uh, just overall sack rate. And they're fifth on passing downs so passing downs would be like third third and long fourth and long and second and really long are obvious passing downs so they're even better when it's obviously going to be a pass at getting to the quarterback and you know for most of the season Nick Bosa hasn't been there so I think that we should be a little bit encouraged by their ability to create big plays Uh, but on the the other side of that is these these specific stats aren't adjusted for opponents they're just how many have you created so we have to keep in mind the quality of the offensive lines that the defensive line has seen and I mean really I don't think we can we have very much evidence that the offensive lines that they've seen post uh, in the post Nick Bosa defense have been all that elite. I mean, Penn State's has definitely improved. Indiana's is fine. Minnesota's is fine, but no, definitely not on the the caliber that they're going to see later in the season. And and what was their ranking again in in terms of giving up explosion plays? <laughs> yeah, so that's that's really bad. Um, there are two metrics here. Uh, the first is called isolated points per play or ISO PPP. Um, And essentially that only looks at the subset of plays that are successful. So then it measures the magnitude of how explosive those successful plays were. Um, So that means like, say uh, a running back gets, gets five yards, which is on first down what, what you would hope they would get for an overall efficient play. 
um, any yards after that essentially are considered explosive yards. In that ranking, Ohio State's defense ranks 121st. You know, so okay. that, that's about dead last. Um, in if you adjust that ranking for what you would expect, how you would expect them to perform based on the down distance and field position, it improves a little bit, but only to 103rd. So, and there's absolutely no difference between their ability to defend against explosive run or pass plays. Yep. They're 97th in the country in both. Once you get in space, you can burn them whether you threw it or you ran it, baby. It doesn't matter. The safety will take a bad angle on you. Um, so here's yeah. my here's the question then, Chad. Right. And, and, and I don't know that there's a way to answer this with numbers. Maybe there is. But, like, my question is, if you're in the top five in the nation in creating explosions and you're in the bottom ten in the nation in giving up explosions, is that a winning formula? Like, is that a, is that a doable trade-off? Or would you rather be, you know, 40th in creating havoc and... and you know, 40th best in, in allowing havoc. You know what I mean? Like, I, 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 I'm not, I'm glad to hear that those numbers match up with what I thought, right? That they're a big play defense. I called it a break and break defense. They'll break you, they'll break themselves. I just don't know if that's a, if that's a way to win a national championship, because I think maybe, I think maybe it is, that in a world, in an offensive world, where people are going to RPO you to death and two is awesome and everybody's got speed, like we're not in a world where you're trying to shut people out anymore. So, so my instinct is maybe, yes, you can win a national title with that. But then my concern is if there is any drop off in the explosions that you're creating without Nick Bosa. If you go, and I know you said that they were still pretty good even without Bosa, but if all of a sudden you're no longer fourth in that, but you're 24th, but you're still in the bottom 10 in what you're giving up, now I think the balance is out of whack. Now I think it's a bad formula. But if you stay in the top five in creating big plays, and you're you're in the bottom 10 in giving up big plays, do you think, Chad, that possibly could work? Or does that sound crazy to you? If you keep giving up 93-yard touchdowns every other game, it's eventually going to lose you a game. I, I think that that's exactly right. Yeah, I, I think that there's really like two two prototype defenses that you can have. You can have a bend-don't-break defense, or you can have, uh, like you just said, a, a break-and-break defense. E- either one can win you a championship. Um, I, I have a theory. I don't have the data s- to support it, but I, I would think that it requires maybe a higher talent level like NFL talent to run the break and break defense that relies on creating explosive plays um, then it does compare to a, a bend don't break defense I think that you can kind of teach discipline and, and gap soundness and things that you want on any, any defense but you can teach that more to less highly rated recruits uh, than you can one that just really requires elite man-on-man coverage skills like a uh, the break and break defense does. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that you're totally right that if there is any drop off in your, your ability to create those havoc plays, then you're going to have uh, a bad time. And I think the thing, the thing to me is that I've questioned a lot this season is with this press man coverage, with the way they play it. And, and Chad, I think by the style of defense, right? If they're playing press man and Alex Grinch said last week, we know most teams don't do this, right? And every time you said, I said to Tabor Johnson, 
is it, can you make an adjustment or press man? Is that who you are? And he said, that's who we are. And as I've said and I've written before, there's nothing, there's no rule that says you have to play press man, but they are dedicated to that. If you're dedicated to that, you're dedicated to a break and break defense. You're not trying to be Ben Don't Break because you know you're putting guys on an island and you're thinking either our pass rush is going to get there or we believe in our corners to defend one-on-one. But that is a risk risk reward defense Chad so I think if if you play that style then you're 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 giving yourself over to that riskier style of defense are you not yeah definitely and I think that one of the other kind of one of the key insights in kind of college football and NFL advanced stats is that you really cannot be reliant on turnovers uh, to have a successful defense um, and, and that's just because turnovers are kind of random creating turnover opportunities, is maybe a little bit less random and there you just want to have a really good pass rush because that's the literally the only thing that is correlated with turnovers and creating turnovers is your sack rate so besides having a really awesome pass rush uh there's not much that's that's statistically correlated with actually creating turnovers um I mean, you can teach the technique to wrench the ball out uh, of a ball carrier's hands, right? Like you can do, you can teach those things, and those are good. But there's just no massive statistical correlation with anything besides the pass rush. And so, if that pass rush, uh, you know, declines in any way, you're really opening yourself up if you're relying on those turnovers to prevent drives from turning into touchdowns. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna. It's gonna be fascinating. Uh, to see what this Ohio State defense does to adjust, what they sort of say, no, we're not adjusting, we believe in our players. I, I do believe, Chad, and I, again, I don't know that this is a numbers question, but you look at the corners, again, and I've said this a lot this year, I, I think Jeffrey Okuda and Kendall Sheffield and Damon Arnett are good. They're yeah. not as good as Garyon Conley, Marshawn Lattimore, and Denzel Ward, which is the three corners you were playing two years ago in 2016. So you're playing the same style of defense, but clearly your personnel's not as good. And it's not it's not a knock on the three guys they have here. But it's just the idea of are you sure that you're gonna stick with press man all the time in a world where you don't have three first round draft picks as your three as your three corner rotation, right? So maybe Okuda will be a first rounder down the line. I think he's played better this year. I don't he wouldn't be drafted in the first round right now if he went pro. Um, so that's what you're judging on it and I understand the idea of, you know, sticking with what you do, but truly, Chad, I think there's a point where if you're going to do this, it's not a luxury to have first-round cornerbacks. It's almost a necessity to have first-round cornerbacks to play this way and be successful, and I think that's part of why they're they're able to recruit because they recruit to it. Guys know they're going to have the chance to impress the NFL and come and play here and do this, but man, if you're good instead of great, I think it shows up a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that that's right. I, I mean, I remember thinking like, oh, oh, just in the past couple of seasons, like, oh, you know, like Garyon Conley, yeah, I think he's good, but like he's not a lead. And then by the end of the season, I'm like, well, how did I ever think that? And the <laughs> same thing with even Denzel Ward last year. I remember like, oh, the hype, it, it doesn't really match up with what I'm seeing. But by the end of the year and now in the NFL, you're like, oh, yeah, this is obviously one of the top corners, period, in college football. So I think that there's room for these corners specifically to improve. And I'm not even sure that the corners themselves are really the biggest problem with the pass defense overall, right? It's it's probably whoever's defending the slot receivers because that's 
who we've allowed uh, the big plays to. Yep. No, I think that's true, and I think Sean Wade is is going to be huge in this game against Purdue. You know, I, I think he's played pretty well, but then also, um, what was the one they just gave up? It was like the one they just gave up a couple weeks ago. It was like maybe it was the Penn State one. I th- that. Maybe the Hamler one against Penn State. I think Sean Wade got beat off the line. There was no linebacker help, a bad angle from the safety, and it's over. And it's like Sean Wade made like one bad play. And he had no – that's the thing, though, too. Like, okay, Sean Wade got beat off the line. Well, K.J. Hamler's good. Stuff happened. But there's no one there to help him. There's no linebackers in a throwing lane. And then Isaiah Pryor came up and took a, a banana angle, I kept calling it, that he ran at the guy, then turned around, and it was like – you know, yes, that should have been a game, but it should have been a 28-yard gain, not a not a 90-yard touchdown. So it's it's the reality. I don't know that it's going to change, but when I asked Urban Meyer about this, he said, like, well, we've already changed some. And, and I feel like I can see a little bit of it where they're giving some nods to this, and I feel like the slant result last week was some nod of maybe trying to soften up a little bit to take away the deep ball, but I'll be very curious to see how they play it against Purdue. Um before we get off the defense and get to questions, I don't like. Do you have a take on this, Chad? Just as a as a person who follows Ohio State and cares about Ohio State, the idea that Nick Bosa has decided that his college career is over. What it's only been a couple hours since that news came out as we record this on Tuesday. What was your initial reaction to that? Uh, yeah, my initial reaction was just uh, pretty much anything that that's pro the the player. So uh, congrats to him. I hope his recovery goes well and he's able to kind of still not have any drop-off in terms of his uh, draft status. Uh, absolutely pro him leaving if that's the best decision for him. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I, I, I don't want to lecture people because people can think whatever they want. But my, the main point, and I wrote a column about it. You guys can find it at cleveland.com. It's just, you know, it's just the idea of if anybody's going to say, well, this wouldn't have happened 10 years ago, or I remember guys who used to care about their team, or we always said – I saw someone, a recruiting guy, tweet, I think there's no, everyone always says there's no I in team, you know? And, yeah, and you know, there's an I in conference expansion, and there's an I in night games, and there's an I in um, Big Ten commissioner millions of dollars. There's a lot of I's in that one. There's a lot of dollar signs in that one, too. So, like, I, I just can't tolerate any view that is backward looking on the idea of, well, what what I played or what I back in Woody's day or back in Jim Trestle's day or whatever, players wouldn't have done this without the acknowledgement that back in those days, coaches didn't make what they make. Rutgers wasn't in the Big Ten. They're not playing night games all the time. The demands aren't there. The money's not there. And that the whole world has changed. And so, yes. Players are more aware of their circumstances and what might be best for them. And often that does not conflict with what's best for the team. And sometimes if it does conflict, they still do what's best for the team. And every now and then, if there's a really hard decision, if a player decides I'm absolutely going to do what's best for me and my family, I do not know how you can argue against it. Denzel Ward missed a bowl game last year and some people flipped out. Denzel Ward's dad just dropped dead when he was 47 out of nowhere. Denzel Ward wants to think about his family. Denzel Ward wants to think about his mom and what he can do right by his family. So he missed a bowl game. You know, Nick Bosa wants to be in the Hall of Fame. He wants to make it to Canton. You know, he has huge dreams. He has huge skills. He wants to be the number one pick. So 
If he wouldn't have gotten injured, Nick Bosa wasn't going to sit out. Nick Bosa was going to play. But now that he is injured, I don't know how you can be upset with the reality of what you said, Chad, that that a guy in a tough spot thinking about his future, uh, you know, if you want to change it, then pay the players. Then pay the players and then their employees, and then it's a whole different world. But until then, um, in a world where kids can be recruited to a school, and if they're not good enough, they get encouraged to leave and they wind up somewhere else, then sometimes your very best players it's not about putting themselves first. It's about in a very tough decision, um, leaning and thinking about their future, not just saying I'm gonna I'm gonna try to come back for the Michigan game or something and, and risk this when I'm putting myself on the line. So I, I can I don't want to lecture people. You can think what you think, but um, I just hope you understand this in the context of the modern game because it's not the old days in a million different ways. And yes, it's not the old days in the way players think about their futures, and that's not a bad thing. You know what else is not a bad thing? Minuteman tickets. Go to our friends at MinutemanTickets.com. They're our ticket guys. Make them your ticket guys. Here's what you do. You want to go to an Ohio State game? You want to go to a concert? Or you want to go to a theater? You want to go out and have some fun, but you don't have a way to do it. You think, I can't just walk into this place. How do I get in? You get in with Minuteman tickets. You go to MinutemanTickets.com. They are a Columbus-based ticket broker with a national selection, but they really dig in on this Ohio stuff, and they're a company that's invested in the community. If if you have that knot in your stomach when you're buying a ticket and you think, I don't know, can I trust these guys? You can trust these guys. You want to go to an Ohio State game? You want to get in on the Dwayne Haskins bandwagon? You want to experience the greatest Ohio State passing game you're probably ever going to see in your life? Maybe you want to you want to do it, even though in a couple of weeks they're probably going to beat up on Nebraska. But wouldn't you want to be there to see it? To say, I saw Dwayne Haskins throw for 488 yards against Nebraska? Go to MinutemanTickets.com. They will have you covered. They'll give you a good selection, a good price, and you can know in your heart that you can trust them. MinutemanTickets.com. They're our ticket guys. Make them your ticket guys. Chad, are you ready for questions from the people? Let's do it. While I look up the questions, just tell me for real, have you ever personally built a robot? I... The last robot that I personally ever built was in middle school in the Lego Robotics Club. So, uh, yeah, uh, I was a nerdy middle schooler. Nice. I was uh, a nerdy middle schooler who could not build a robot. So you had one up on me, my friend. You had one up on me. Um, Zach Kaminsky at Kaminsky underscore Zach. How would you grade Kendall Sheffield so far this year? If he goes pro after this year, where would he be drafted? Um I think Kendall Sheffield has like a lot of raw ability. I think he's going to smoke the 40 at the combine. I bet you his agility numbers are going to be good. I bet you his just his athletic testing is going to be good. Um, I thought the play he made last week was like showing off the best of Kendall Sheffield, running with the guy, going up and looking for the ball. I think he's I think he's been pretty solid. I don't know that I see the the level of Marshawn Lattimore, Eli Apple, Denzel Ward, kind of first round stuff, but I think it's a very good chance that he goes, right? I mean, he was a junior college guy who had started at Alabama, was a five-star kid. This is his second year starting at Ohio State, so I don't have like a firm, like real hard opinion on Kendall Sheffield, but like I feel like he's been probably pretty good. I feel like a lot of the big plays they've given up haven't really been on him. I think maybe he's been the best of the corners, but I don't also think he's at that first round level. But like if if he goes and tests well and sneaks like into the 
early third round or something like that, I don't think I'd be surprised. What's your read on Kendall Sheffield, Chad? Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised with a, a third to fifth round grade for him. Um, I, I've been pretty encouraged by his progression since last year. It seems like for some of these corners, the, the less you hear their name, the better, right? And, and I think we didn't hear very much of Sheffield's name period this season until the last couple of games. I think there was like a pass interference call or something like that in like one big play against Indiana. Um but yeah, overall, I think that he's gotten a lot better. And like you said, Doug, he has he has a ton of physical abilities. So I, I think based on his current trajectory, he's in, in line for like a third round grade, but he can definitely improve that. Nathan Freilich at N underscore Frey 23. The second half of the question is uh, Urban's headaches seem to be more frequent lately. I noticed he seemed to have one during the presser on Monday. Is it a growing issue? Listen, I'm not going to speculate on Urban Meyer's... Um, Physical health, we know he's had this cyst issue in his head. He did have surgery a couple years ago. That is a thing that when you read about it, it's not necessarily a a super serious thing. Um, It can put pressure on a spot in your head and cause the headaches. That's like the worst outcome of those. A lot of people, when you read the literature that have these issues, really have no effects from them. He seems like he's had sort of on the bad side of the possible effects, but mostly the worst effects are headaches that I think when you read about it, can be exacerbated by stress. So like in the middle of a game on the sideline, being stressed out like any coach is, I do feel like it can contribute to that. And I just wanted to say, I did also notice him sort of like rubbing the left side of his head during the news conference on Monday. And that is the side of his head that he was rubbing on the sideline when he went down to one knee and had the issue. So um, I think that's probably where he feels that pressure. I did notice it, Nathan. But I'm, I can't speculate at all beyond that because um, I don't know. I just know what I've read about the cysts and I see what you see. But I did notice that uh, on Monday with Thurman. But the other part of your question, can we average 500 yards passing? And if so, does it matter if it comes in the air or on the ground? I have, I've been very curious about this, Chad. Chad, do you believe that there – is there anything in the numbers or just in your belief that it's inherently better if you're going to gain 500 yards – to do it 250 on the ground, 250 in the air? Or can you be a really lopsided offense? I think Ohio State's yardage right now, 67% of their yardage is through the air. That's crazy high. The highest of Urban Meyer's career. Is balance inherently better, Chad? Or can you be unbalanced? And if you're efficient and successful, who cares where it comes from? Yeah, I think overall, as long as you're efficient, it doesn't super matter whether there's pure run-pass yardage balance. Uh, that said, I think it, it, it makes a little bit more of a difference in specific situations. So like short yardage and in the red zone are kind of where I've keyed into there. Um, and Doug, I, I know you just wrote an article about the, the short yardage, uh, right? Yes, I did this morning. Yeah, so I, I think that, that that's that's really big as long as you still have short yardage success doesn't super matter whether it's coming through the air or on the ground i do think so the the article i wrote was that what is ohio State's short yardage problem they don't really have a short yardage problem their short yardage efficiency is better than all but one team in the top 10 they're better on third and short with their conversion rates than alabama they're better than clemson they're better than michigan they're better than georgia they're better than a lot of people um but the one they stand out when they miss, right? But I do feel like there was one, and it was I was gonna jiff it. Sometimes I'm very bad at jiffing, and I couldn't get my jiffing to jiff. 
But and I think people for it's just human nature, Chad. It happens with everything. You you remember failures. It's like if you do something ten times and you screwed up twice, you forget about the eight times you did it right. So that's why people think the short yardage is bad because they've had the series where they failed on third and one and fourth and one back to back. They had the Dwayne Haskins failed zone read keep on fourth and one against Penn State that just looked awful. Dobbins has got stuffed a couple times, but they've been pretty good throwing it when they have on third and short. Late against Minnesota, they had a third and two, and I'm pretty sure it was an RPO, and they he pulled it out of Weber. Weber was going to run left, and he kept it, and Haskins rolled right and hit Luke Farrell wide open over the middle for like an 11-yard gain. It was easy. It was beautiful. If Ohio State doesn't make that and has to give the ball back, Minnesota's still in it. But do you have the idea of maybe throwing on third and two? Does that make sense to you? Like, is there any problem in that, Chad, that if if their best third and short play is a quick throw, is that okay? Yeah, I think generally it is. Um, So I think two two things here. First of all, um, their third and short success rate overall, and this is with garbage time when the game is decided, uh, filtered out, their success rate is 87.5%, which is 20th in the country. Uh, Like you just said, your comparison with Alabama, which is a very similarly structured offense, by the way. Um, Alabama's is 83.3%, which is 39th. So they're, I mean, they're better on third and short than Alabama is. And I think that, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good bar uh, for thinking about this. I think the, the only possible concern is that in general, um, when we think about ceilings and floors uh, for, for success, in general, running the ball has a higher floor, but maybe a, a lower ceiling while it's the opposite for the pass game. So if the floor is lower for the pass game, I mean, that, that's an incomplete pass. Um, it, it seems like with, I, I think that we're just judging this, the third and short success rate, purely based on the, a reference point of JT Barrett. Yep. And he was just so automatic uh, in third and short that we were really spoiled uh, and so that's kind of where our disappointment lies. Yeah, people forget that sometimes you get stopped. And the other thing I think throws people off is, especially on fourth down, Urban is so quick and confident. When you get fourth and two at the 48, you know he's going. You know he's going. He knows he's going. They get up and they go. And then you expect them to make it. It's like, well, you were so confident. And you were so quick to the line. How could you possibly be stopped? Sometimes you get stopped. Sometimes everybody gets stopped. Now, I do want to mention, Chad, the red zone stuff that you brought up. I thought, and I mentioned this in the postgame podcast after the game, and re-watching it, I thought it again. I thought their red zone plays were not red zone plays. I thought they ran a lot of the exact same routes and a lot of the exact same pass, the look in the passing game from the eight-yard line that they run from the their own 25-yard line. What would you like to see them do in the red zone? Because I feel like when the field gets compressed a little bit, to just like run K.J. Hill on a crossing route on third and seven from the nine-yard line is probably not going to work. Um, so like I'm out... I don't agree with short yardage concerns, but I think I'm in on red zone concerns, especially after last week when they were in the red zone three times and didn't score a touchdown. What would your solution be? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so j- just a little bit of, of background in terms of the numbers um, that, that I'm looking at to kind of make these calls. Um, 
they kind of weirdly fall into two very different categories here. So if you look at just how the offense does when faced with a scoring opportunity, and essentially that's a first down inside your opponent's 40-yard line, they average 5.75 points per scoring opportunity, which is sixth in the country. So that, that's awesome. It is good. Um, and that continues when you look inside the between the 30-yard line and the 21-yard line. There, they're 13th in the country with a 53.9% success rate. Um, so that, that's, again, awesome. But it declines, their success rate declines the closer they get to the goal line. Um, between the 20 and the 11-yard line, they're 30th. Inside the 10, they're 69th. And in terms of just overall touchdown percentage within the red zone, they're 61st. So it as you can kind of tell, there's definitely a gradient in terms of yeah. the success rate the closer they, they get to the end zone. And I think that you're totally right that it seems like the play calling doesn't exactly match uh, how much space they, how much vertical space they have that makes so much of the offense work in terms of spacing with the wide receivers. Um, I, I think more tight end uh, more tight end passes could be helpful. Um, and, and to be honest, I, I'm I'm very at least interested to see what a Tate Martell package could be. Oh, oh my oh Chad. When <laughs> when Landis left, I didn't know if anyone would say Tate Martell on this podcast again, and I didn't want to be alone standing in the darkness with Tate Martell. But here you are, you have brought me back into the light, Chad Peltier. Talk to us about the Tate Martell red zone package. I, I, to, to be honest, I, I'm kind of like a, a late uh, converter, I guess. Uh, I, I was really hesitant to be like, oh, yeah, we should definitely switch out to the running guy when we get in the red zone. And I'm not totally convinced that's going to work if all he ever does is do um, a, a zone read. I think he has to have some option to pass. Um, but I, I've been really encouraged just overall about Tate's passing ability mm-hmm. in, in terms of both his accuracy and his decision-making with the ball um, in the limited spots that we've seen him this year. And so I, I'm really open to the idea of at least you know, just, just trying it out. Um, because I, I think that the numbers could just make sense to run the ball in, in those situations. And, and here's the thing. And, and to me, Chad, if you're going to run, right, if, if, if you think the answer, and maybe this is wrong, tell me if this is wrong, but if you think the answer in the red zone is let's run, then you may as well put in the quarterback who's also a run threat. Now, I know if you keep in Dwayne, then the defense still has to anticipate a pass and might play you a little bit differently. And maybe if you put Tate in, they're going to just come up and, and assume a run. But Ohio State was successful for years with JT Barrett when people knew they were going to run. You talked about how good JT was on short yardage. Everybody in the stadium knew every single time what was going to happen. It's going to be a JT Barrett QB draw or QB power, and it worked all the time. So, like, I'm not worried about a defense thinking, oh, they're going to run here because Tate's in. And it's like, yeah, they are going to run. And it's going to be Tate or it's going to be the tailback, and you don't know which one it's going to be. And I think Tate runs the zone read pretty well. I think he's an elusive enough runner. I think he's comfortable making the quick decision and reading the end. And I think it could really work. And then also, again, he's not a wildcat guy. He's not a running back playing quarterback. He can throw. He can't throw like Dwayne, but almost nobody in the country can throw like Dwayne. But I think this guy's going to be your starting quarterback next year, and he's going to throw. He absolutely can throw. And and I, don't, I think it makes a lot of sense, Chad, the idea of 
this isn't working. Like, the idea to me that they're sixth in the country from the 40, and they're in the 60s once they get inside the 10, that can't be a normal progression for a team to be so good from the 40 and so terrible from inside the 10. Isn't those stats you read, does that make them an outlier in how their gradient would look like in their scoring chances? Yeah, I don't have great comparisons just off the top of my head, but I'd be really surprised if that's what is common for most offenses. Did you did someone tell you that you have to say a Tate Martell thing on this podcast, or did you honestly come to that opinion on your own? Uh, no, I, I've, I've honestly I've been more open to it ever since. The, I think it was the very first drive of the TCU game, and there was the big throw. It was like a 40-yarder to Austin Mack that, that gave Ohio State the ball in the red zone. But then I think that they settled for, for a field goal on that possession, and a very similar thing happened with an explosive play into the red zone, but they got held up for a field goal against Indiana too. And I, I think it was around Indiana that I, that I was really thinking – you know, maybe they just need to, to change personnel. Uh, yep. I, I think you got to look at play calling first, but it may be worth exploring the, the personnel decision here. And, and that's the thing that I think is at the very least the point, Chad. I think it's worth exploring. And and, and maybe Purdue's not the week, like maybe minute. And that's why it was, it was a little weird <laughs> to me. I think it's worth pushing Urban on this because they had Tate stuff when Urban was out. And now Urban's back and they haven't really done Tate stuff. And I thought Indiana and Minnesota was your chance. I think Purdue's too good to mess around with something you haven't done, and we'll get to a question here in a second. But like Nebraska would be your chance. But like I think if you're going to do it, you've got to get it figured out, right? Like this is maybe Nebraska after the bye week is the chance to say let's try this because if you're going to do it, I think you have to you have to like figure out if it can work. This yeah, is, and Nebraska is very clearly the, the worst team remaining on the schedule. Uh, so I, I think that if, if you're going to try it, it should be against Nebraska, and you better feel solid for it going into the, the close stretch of the year. Adam Grinstead, AC Grinstead, had asked this. I want to acknowledge the question. When will we finally see a tape package after the bye week? That's what we just talked about. I think that's, I think that's very, very possible. And then Kenny Stabler at Beats Bledsoe had asked, is it possible the team knows it has short yardage issues and red zone issues, but knows Haskins is good enough to fix it against this level opponent, but they will bring out more wrinkles and possible Tate stuff come November as opponents get better? And that's the point that I would make of, if your secret plan is to like run Tate against Michigan in the red zone, like I would not try that for the first time against Michigan. I think you've got to work this out first, right, Chad? I think that that's right. I, I, I would be very I, – I think that that's – it's definitely a possibility. We have to acknowledge that that's a possibility, but you can't hinge your, your hopes about the red zone offense based on, on that materializing against Michigan. Jean Wu at 2 underscore 4 underscore Wu. Has the offensive line always been as subpar as now in the last few few years, and was it just not as noticeable with JT? So I will say that Malcolm Pridgen – and I think Michael Jordan both graded as champions for last week. Um, but I thought the right side of the line had problems. Isaiah Prince had a lot of problems. I thought he almost had a, a an, an emotional and mental situation there for five or ten minutes where he, and Kevin Wilson mentioned this after the game, where he had a bad missed block on a run play and he let it get in his head and he gave up, I think, two sacks and a holding penalty in the next five minutes. I thought Demetrius Knox, from what I could tell, did not play great and missed some blocks. But I have two points that I want to make. But but first, Chad, just the idea of 
how what's your view on the offensive line this year maybe compared to the last couple years and how they've played yeah it, it doesn't seem like the I, I think that there's two kind of bigger pro issue problems with with the run game one of them is it does seem like they are a little bit less dominant just in run blocking and as we saw a little bit in against Minnesota in pass protection, uh, for instance, their line yards per carry has has dropped definitely since last season. Um, but the, the big concern for me is that a they are allowing a higher percentage of runs to be stuffed at or behind the line, and they're also not allowing or creating as many opportunities for running backs to create explosive plays either. Um, I, I, I was totally shocked about this, but. Uh, J.K. Dobbins only has one carry this entire season of over of twenty or more yards. And th that was really shocking. So, um, yeah, I, I think that sometimes the, the the issue with the run steps has to do with unblocked defenders coming off, and uh, unless there's a scheme change or, or a play calling change that accounts for that unblocked defender, you're still going to have those run steps. But they are a little bit less dominant just in terms of general down-to-down -down efficiency and getting to the second level compared to years past. Yeah, J.K.'s yards per carry is, is quite a bit down. They actually have handed the ball to the tailbacks more through seven games this year than they did last year. That's in large part because there's no quarterback runs, so they all the runs are to the tailback. Um, but I, I think the run game, the main thing, and I wrote a thing today also about like how I think you need to think of RPO passes as part of the run game because... Urban said there were at least 10 that last week. I counted 11 in my feeble attempts to break down film of what looked like pretty clear RPOs. They were 9 of 11 throwing, I think, for 89 yards. And so, like, they're getting 8 yards a pop on plays that could be run plays. And if they averaged 8 yards a run, people would be going, that's great. But instead, Haskins is, is reading it. He's not keeping it because he's no run threat. But he's throwing. He's throwing these quick passes, and it's working. So... I think people are frustrated by the run game. I think you need to keep that RPO aspect in mind. But I think when people say the run game, they really mean the tailbacks. And the biggest difference is they're giving the ball to the tailbacks more than a year ago. But J.K. is just not as explosive. And I just feel like he is running into walls. I think of all the things defenses are doing, they're not just selling out to stop the run. I feel like they are selling out to stop J.K. Dobbins. And I'm just thinking this in my head right now as I say it. There have been times this year, Chad, where I feel like, man, Mike Weber has bigger holes than J.K. Dobbins. And maybe that's not a coincidence. Maybe defenses, when J.K.'s in the game, because they rotate by series, they can tell who the tailback is that's in, maybe they sell out even more against the run when Dobbins is in the game, which then opens up the passing game even more. But as a result, J.K.'s stats go down. Because I think the thing you said, when I was looking back on film and trying to figure out why they got stopped on the run last week, I thought they were unblocked defenders on a lot of plays. There's a lot of times when there's six or seven guys up defending against the run against five or six blockers, and you're just not going to win. But then what you do do is win on the next play with the pass. But I think those unblocked defenders are a very common trait of the runs that are getting stuffed this year, Chad. Yeah, I, I think that that's totally right. I, I think the only other thing I, I would mention, though, uh, with with regards to uh, Dobbins specifically, is the his efficiency declined at the end of last season too, and really? it wasn't just because of the 
the quality of the defenses that he was seeing. So I, I was looking at the percentage of his carries that went for five or more yards, which is just a general measure of, of efficiency. And he had a 33% opportunity rate or five plus yard carries against Michigan that dropped to 12% in the big 10 championship. And it was only 23% against the Trojans, which I was really surprised about because the Trojans didn't have a good run defense. And, and so I, I think that, that part of it was defenses adjusting to force uh, JT to carry the ball, uh, to make the read to keep instead of the handoff to Dobbins. And so when Dobbins did get it, he was immediately swallowed. And I think that, like you just said, it's, it's entirely possible that when Dobbins is in the game, defenses are just all about stopping him first and foremost because they know that if Ohio State also has consistency in the ground game, then, I mean, the, the game is completely over. Yeah, and I did think P.J. Fleck said it after the game last week against Minnesota because I went into the visiting team news conference, which I never do. I've done it probably three times in 14 years. But I wanted to see, since Minnesota had played well, I wanted to ask P.J. Fleck, like, what's the game plan for sticking with Ohio State? And he basically said the idea of you've got to stop the run. And, and he didn't exactly say it, but I sort of said it in the question, and he didn't disagree with it. It's like Haskins is going to be Haskins. I don't know that anybody can stop Haskins. So if you think he's going to burn you anyway, and I know Minnesota especially had secondary issues last week, then just let him get his, try to stop him in the red zone where clearly Ohio State has had trouble, and make them not be able to run with the tailback and take your chance. And the result is they only scored 30 last week. I think that's some version of success for the Minnesota defense even though Dwayne Haskins threw it all over the field. So I'd be very curious, Chad, going forward, if this is what we see. This is a good question for you, Chad, because I think you'll have a good view on it, just as sort of an observer of Ohio State football. Joshua D23. How does Urban Meyer define a successful season, and how should they? On a scale of 1 to 10, how unrealistic is it for the fan base to measure success as the playoff and the national title? So 10 is like... uh, um, that's completely uh, reasonable. Ten is great, and one is you're nuts. You can't only think about national titles. When you observe Ohio State football, Chad, what do you think is the right measure of, of what success is? To, to be honest, since since the playoff era, uh, I, I've kind of seen the baseline as getting into the playoff. Uh, I, I, this may be too high a, a standard, but I, I viewed it based on Ohio State's overall talent level. If they don't make the playoff, then that's considered a, a less a less than successful season. Um, if you just look at both the total accumulated talent that Ohio State has and the average talent per player, there there's really no competition between Alabama and then Ohio State and then and then everyone else. It, all of the other contenders this year, so you know Clemson uh, to a lesser extent Georgia because they've made pretty big strides over the last couple of years but really Alabama and Ohio State should be in the playoff just based on talent every single year I will say this is what I think Urban Meyer's answer is to this and I think I agree with this and it's a slight variation on what you said Chad it's competing for the playoff every year and here's what I mean by that can you imagine if Ohio State was five and two right now like Penn State Penn State is a good team they are no longer competing for the playoff. It's mid-October, and Penn State is out of the playoff race. That's a reality, right? Right. Ohio State, in 2012, they went undefeated. 
People were talking about, could they be voted the AP champion at the end of the year? Even with a bowl ban, they were in the picture. 2013, they go to the Big Ten championship game undefeated, knowing if they win, they're in the national championship game. They were in the in the BCS, that was BCS then, in the BCS picture. 2014, they lose early. You think they're out of it. Then they get in it, they win it all. They actually were probably less in the conversation that year than they have been some other years. But they won the national championship in the end. They were in the playoff discussion. 2015, they're the best team in the country all year, but they have these weird games. They don't play that well. They lose the game. They can't lose against Michigan State. But all year to that point, through the first 10 games, they were absolutely in the playoff discussion. 2016, they make the playoff. 2017, they finish number five. People on the day of the selection thought they were going to make the playoff. So that's the idea of... You barely fell short. You lost the game at the end of the year. You couldn't lose. But all year, Ohio State fans, Ohio State media, Ohio State players, Ohio State coaches thought about the playoff, thought we're striving for the playoff. We need to win this game for the playoff. You didn't start off 2-2. Two and two. You weren't 5-3 and three and out of it. And I think that is a definition of success that I think is incredibly, incredibly fair that you must be in the conversation every year. And every now and then, if you finish fifth, if you lose late, that's going to happen. But think about where Penn State is right now, out of the playoff picture in the middle of October, and think to yourself that in Urban Meyer's seven years, Ohio State has never been in that situation. Uh, Let's see. What do you think of Jeffrey Okuda? Our guy Shaq Harrison at Harrison Shaq is asking, is Okuda a first-round pick in 2020? Um, you said you were talking about Sheffield this year, Chad. What are your thoughts on Okuda this year? Yeah, I, so going back to those marginal efficiency numbers, uh, Sheffield ha- is the lowest uh, has the lowest marginal efficiency of the corners, which also means the best. Um, he's been used, it seems like, a, a little bit less than, than Sheffield and uh, Arnett. Um, but I, it seems like his snaps have increased with Arnett's injury. So I, I've been pretty pretty impressed with Okuda so far, and I think that we have every reason to think, based on his size, that he would be a pretty high draft pick, uh, assuming he remains on his current trajectory. Yeah, I think I think he's the prototype. I mean, I, I think he may be... Marshawn Lattimore was, was quite a prototype. That guy was an elite recruit and an amazing athlete when he got here, and then he had two years of injuries. Um, but I think maybe Lattimore and... Okuda are the best prototype NFL corners that they have recruited here um, in this run of draft picks at corner. Because certainly Denzel Ward isn't exactly that. And I don't think, uh, I don't know that Bradley Roby was exactly that. I'm not sure that Eli Apple was exactly that or that Duran Grant was exactly that. But that Lattimore and Okuda, I think, check all the boxes of what you want. So I think he has a little bit of a ways to come. Um, I thought the, earlier this year, I think it was against Tulane, where he had the pick on a play where they were offside, and then they came back like two plays later and ran the exact same play, and they gave up like a 40-yard pass. And it's it's right. a half inch away from it's, – it's basically the same play all the way down the sideline, and then it's making a play on the ball or not. I think that illustrated Jeffrey Okuda of like what he could be and what he isn't quite all the time yet. But I think it's possible that um, – I don't – I think I would guess that Sheffield – or Arnett, or maybe both, will be gone next year. That when he's clearly in a role as, a, as the number one corner maybe next year, he shows you more of that um, every single play. 
All right, this is a good overall one from Alan Kitchen, our guy at A Kitchen 87. If nothing changes or improves on offense and defense, if this team basically plays for the rest of the years they play right now, what will they do? Will they win out the regular season? Will they win the Big Ten? Will they win a playoff semifinal? Will they win the national championship? Look, if this team is what it is, Chad, where do you think it gets if, if nothing changes? Yeah, so um, just I'm going to go. My first answer is going to be purely based on the numbers, and I'm going to use S&P Plus here um, with their win probabilities to, to give my best guess. Um, S&P Plus gives the best odds for total wins uh, at 11. Uh, so Ohio State would go 11 and 1. They give that a 40% chance of happening. Uh, the next highest is actually 10 and 2, followed by undefeated at, at, at 20%. So I, I think that any of those are are possible. Um, in terms of if the one loss, the one projected cumulative loss, uh, if it comes against Michigan, I think that obviously Ohio State's in a really tough position unless the Spartans can upset uh, Michigan and then they'd have to lose another game too. So I, I think that it really comes down to the Michigan game, whether or not they're going to be in contention for the playoff. And I think that that's kind of what my eyes tell me about this team too, that this is a top five-ish team overall in the country, uh, but that it really hinges on the Michigan game, uh, whether or not they're going to be in, in line to achieve their goals. So I think I agree with that. I think Michigan's really good. Before the season, I picked both Michigan and Ohio State to make the playoff, which sounds nuts, but I will tell you, I think there is a world where if Michigan beats Ohio State and Ohio State like looks good and is like number two in the playoff rankings at that moment and loses to Michigan, depending how the rest of the world shakes out, I think the Pac-12 probably won't get a team in. I think the Big 12 maybe won't. I'm still waiting for Notre Dame to lose. I don't think they're that good. I think it's absolutely possible the Big Ten could get two teams in, depending what else happens. So I think the idea of a Michigan Big Ten champion and Ohio State getting in the way they did when they got in in 16, except that time Penn State did not get in, I think Ohio State could get in while sitting home if they lose to Michigan. And I wrote this week, I do think they can lose one of the next four if it's not Michigan and absolutely get in. Because as long as they then beat Michigan, they'd still have the tiebreaker. They'd still go to the Big Ten Championship. And if they're a 12-1 and overall Big Ten champ, they're in. They're just in. With what's already happened with Georgia's loss this week, with Washington's loss, with Penn State's loss, they're in. A 12-1 and Ohio State Big Ten champ is in. The question is, if they lose to Michigan, maybe they don't get to the championship game. But I think that's very possible. I think... They are as good as anyone except Bama. I think every other team except Bama has flaws. And I think Haskins gives you a puncher's chance. So I am not, I picked them to lose in the national championship game before the season. At this moment, I would pick the same thing lose in the national championship game. But I will say, you don't have to be better than Bama, you just have to be better than Bama on one day. And I think they are not going to be better than Bama. They are not going to get to a point where they are a better team than Alabama this year. But I think Dwayne Haskins gives you the chance that in the in one game, he can go nuts and you find a way to win, even if really you only have about a 20 or 25% chance to win. So I think people should feel good about this team. I think no Nick Bosa makes it more difficult, but I would hang with these guys because I think they have a shot. Um... This is one I think is interesting to talk about, Chad. Austin Chappelle, our guy, 
Ohio State was criticized in the past for needing a quarterback who can throw to beat Bama. Now we have a full-on pocket passer. Are we in the same problem but on the other side of the spectrum? Is Haskins too stationary to beat an elite team? So I, I, I think like – I think and there's another question in here that's basically about that. Like I think that's an interesting thing. I do feel like he's pretty stationary. In this, it's funny in this modern world, and I'm, I'm thinking about it. I've been thinking about it for the draft. Like when you think about, <coughs> excuse me, guys like Carson Wentz and Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson and some of these guys who are first round picks who can really throw it, but I feel like are really good athletes too and can move. I feel like Haskins is not as good of an athlete as Carson Wentz. He's not as good of an athlete as Baker Mayfield or Patrick Mahomes. But I don't know how much that matters now. In college, I think it might matter might matter a little bit in his NFL evaluation. But when you see Dwayne Haskins at all, Chad, do you maybe see a guy who's a little bit too much of a pocket passer, or are we really nitpicking now? Uh, I really lean on the that's that's kind of on the nitpicking side um, for me because I, I think that Alabama is while Alabama has been beat by you know Johnny Manziel, uh, it, it's more about the quarterback's ability to move around within the pocket than necessarily it is to move around uh, to scramble outside the pocket because some of those old Miss teams that have upset similar Alabama defenses didn't have a mobile quarterback. Like, I mean, Bo Wallace and Chad Kelly aren't the most, uh, you know, mobile quarterbacks in the world, uh, but, but they were able to create explosive passing plays against the Alabama defense because they too, play a kind of high risk, high reward defense like Ohio state does. Um, so I, I think it's more about creating explosive pass plays than it is necessarily about having a mobile quarterback. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot there with Dwayne Haskins. That is exactly what you want against right. a great team. You want that guy to give you a shot. And I think what, what we saw with JT Barrett and that offense against Clemson in 2016, I still think it scarred some people. And I just hate the idea of like, I wish we hadn't even made the playoff. We got our butt kicked. You want to be in the arena. You want to get there. They got there, and then they didn't play well. We were waiting all year for that passing game to develop, and then that game proved that it just wasn't good enough. It just wasn't good enough. This is the complete transformation. This gives you a shot. This is not an offense that's going to get shut out in a playoff game. So I think... I think that's all you can ask. If you had Nick Bosa, you know what? I'm not so sure you couldn't line up with Alabama toe for toe and tell Nick Bosa, you go get Tua and tell Dwayne Haskins, you go throw five touchdown passes and let's win this thing. I think no Nick Bosa makes it more difficult, but I think Dwayne Haskins gives you a shot. Chad, uh, you must go build a robot now, correct? Yeah, I guess it's about that robot building time. So, so, so listen, man, why is someone that is as smart and as successful as you, with an actual awesome, cool job, why are you so invested in college football like you are? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, just watching college football is a lot of fun, and breaking it down is even more fun. Um, but I, I think just the experiences around football, like it's always been a big family thing for me. So just being able to dig into it so I can talk about it with my, with my family, uh, I think that that's, that's the most fulfilling part of it. Chad Peltier, how can people follow you? Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I, my Twitter name is CG Peltier. Um, you can look for me on, on Land Grant Holy Land or Football Outsiders. Chad Peltier, you are the man. Thank you so much for your time today. I hope you will come back and join us another time on Buckeye Talk. But on this day, when I was alone in my basement, 
You didn't just save me, Chad Peltier. You saved the listeners who told me over and over and over again, dear God, Doug, please do not sit on a podcast by yourself and shout for two hours. So, Chad, you were awesome. Loved having you. Thanks so much. Love reading you. And we'll talk to you soon, man. All right. Thanks a lot, Doug. Appreciate it. So thanks to Chad for that. Really owe him. Uh, make sure you guys are following him on Twitter. And uh, and make sure you're sticking with Buckeye Talk. All right, a couple things I want to get to. Um, one is this. One is this. And it's that I think Purdue can beat Ohio State. <laughs> and if you're like driving off the road right now, uh, I apologize. But let me make point number two before I get to point number one more. <laughs> Point number two is, and I wrote about this on Monday, and nobody read it. Not that many people read it. Maybe it had a bad headline or something. I don't know. Ohio State, if Ohio State loses to Purdue, basically nothing changes for its season. Ohio State can lose one of its next four games, and probably basically nothing changes. Certainly they can lose to Purdue, Maryland, or Nebraska, and nothing changes. Because those teams are not going to be at a tie with them for anything. Um... They're going to wind up ahead of those teams. And and basically, a one-loss Big Ten champ will get in the playoff. And if Ohio State loses to Purdue, Maryland, or Nebraska, they still have the opportunity in their own control to be a one-loss Big Ten champ. They still would need to beat Michigan State and Michigan. If If they win those games, they would be the champ of the East and go to the Big Ten championship game. Even if Michigan doesn't lose any more, um... If they beat Michigan, Michigan would have one Big Ten loss. Ohio State would have one Big Ten loss to someone like Purdue, and Ohio State wins a tiebreaker. You guys know that. So I'm not telling you that the next four games don't matter. Um, Michigan State does not – Michigan State could be a problem if if somehow Michigan State runs the table um, with the win over Ohio State. But, I I mean, I think Michigan State is going to lose to Michigan this week. So, like, I'm – we can cross the Michigan State went 8-1 and one in the Big Ten bridge when we get to it, which is why I'm lumping Michigan State in. I just don't think they're going to do it. So that's the idea, that Ohio State as an undefeated Big Ten champ is in. Ohio State as a one-loss Big Ten champ is in. And I know you can say, well, what about this, what about that? Enough stuff's going to happen. Enough stuff has already happened. They're in. So that's the good news. The bad news is I think Purdue has a chance to beat them. Ohio State has had weird things happen at Purdue. I'm going to have a story up this week about the 2009 game when Ohio State went to Purdue and Purdue had a lousy record but had played a bunch of close games. Purdue's 3-3 three and three this year. I think that team only had one win going into that game. Um, so this Purdue team's a little more respected, but this Purdue team is 3-3 three and three and could be 5-1 and one easily. They have close losses um, to Northwestern, Eastern Michigan, and Missouri. And if they were five and one or six and zero, oh, people would be thinking about this differently. I don't. I don't think Ohio State is going to overlook Purdue, but I just think their offense is good enough to force Ohio State to keep up. I don't think their defense is going to stop Ohio State uh, by the S and P rankings, which is like a good overall ranking um, of teams. Purdue is 39th in the country. They're ahead of Stanford. They're ahead of Texas. They're ahead of Iowa State. They're ahead of TCU. They're ahead of like some pretty good teams. They're ahead of Colorado, Colorado, and Minnesota. Um, 
Offensively, they're 17th. Defensively, they're 84th. So Purdue has a really good offense and a really smart coach in Jeff Brom and a really good playmaker in Rondale Moore um, and, a, and a iffy defense. But I think Ohio State, you know, if Purdue gets in a shootout with them, I think Purdue has a shot. So I, I normally, I, I mean, I'm not trying to freak you out. I'm just trying to get you ready. The line is not that big. The line, I think, is less than two touchdowns still. I think I'm going to pick take Purdue with the points. I think I'll pick Ohio State. I don't think I'm going to outright pick Purdue to win. That'd be a little nuts. But I think it's going to be a game. I just think it's going to be a game. I think Purdue has enough of the things that have hurt Ohio State so far uh, that have bothered this Ohio State defense. Um, and, I, and I just imagine a world where Purdue comes up with some kind of defensive game plan that Ohio State has never seen them run because that's what you hear every week. And all of a sudden, you know, Purdue's putting up 35 and Ohio State's putting up 32 and it's a game and I, I think that's possible. So um, be ready for that. Uh, the other thing I want to tell you is I talked to, guess who I talked to this week? It's going to be in the Rondale Moore story because Rondale Moore is 5'9". He was recruited by Ohio State. He went to Purdue. He was a four-star recruit. But there are some little guys sweeping the Big Ten. Rondale Moore, J.D. Spielman from Nebraska, K.J. Hamler from Penn State. And Ohio State doesn't have any of those little slot guys. Their slot guys are big. But you know who would be a great little slot guy for Ohio State? Superman! Yeah. Did I talk to Superman this week? Heck yeah, I did. Eric Glover Williams is playing at Slippery Rock. He transferred from Ohio State before the 2017 season. He was a cornerback here who got moved to offense like in the spring of 17. Then he transferred. He went to junior college last year, but he didn't play football because he wanted to save his eligibility. So he's at Division II Slippery Rock right now. He's actually playing corner, but he still thinks he might want to be offense someday. He and Demario McCall are the guys that I think could be part of this little guy Big Ten revolution that Ohio State's not participating in. And Superman actually brought up Demario McCall, which made my head explode. I'm talking to Superman. He's talking about Demario McCall. If somebody would have said Tate Martell's name, I don't know what I would have done. So anyway, uh, I just think Purdue has some stuff that can bother Ohio State. So I don't know that that's a shock. I think other people might believe that too, but I believe it. I believe it. All right, this podcast will continue. I wanted to say that I made note of the fact that right now, this podcast, to have a five-star rating, you have to be 4.75 overall or above, okay? We've when we've dropped below a five star, it's because we've dropped like four point seven three, and then we're a four and a half. Right now we are a four point seven five seven six eight five three five two six two two zero six one. So four point seven five seven basically. Um, the last review was a three star, um, and so I I made a screenshot. I'm making note of where we were when Bill left. And whether I can keep this podcast a five-star with the way it's going to go now. And the way it's going to go is that um, we're going to have a good time. We're going to do the same stuff. And we're going to have a new co-host soon. Next week, I would like to do this. I'd like to make it like a Reddit AMA and ask me anything. Um, It's the bye week. So if we want to talk Ohio State history, crazy stories of my 14 seasons, 
covering Ohio State, what I think about um, what it's like to cover the Buckeyes, what I think of the state of sports journalism. I think some people might have questions about, you know, Cleveland.com and the other outlets that are out there these days. Um, anything you want to ask, I'll put the call out on Twitter. And if we don't get that, then we'll just talk football. Um, but we can do some more food talk next week. We'll try to do some offbeat stuff a little bit because uh, we're not going to be dug in on football as much. But I thought it was important to dig in on football this week because I think this this team's at an important point. I think this is an interesting game. And so I didn't want to, even though we lost Bill, I didn't want to go too nuts this week. I wanted to keep it about football. Then we can go nuts next week, and then maybe we'll have a new co-host, a uh, permanent co-host soon after that. So we're not going to get to two hours. Um, my voice is running out. Your ears are running out. So in conclusion, I want to say thank you to everyone. Thank you to everyone who's tweeted. Thank you to everyone who has dropped reviews. Um, some people have sent some very nice emails. Um, some people were a little bit mean on Twitter, but I deserve it. I'm good. I can, I'm a big boy. I can handle it. You know, I can criticize. If I criticize Bill Davis, then uh, then I can be criticized. But I really appreciate um, everybody who's hung in with us uh, all this time on Buckeye Talk. And uh, and I will say, we aren't going anywhere. So thanks to Chad Peltier. Thanks to you guys. I'm Doug Maurice. And I forgot to say this one thing. Thanks to my daughters and my wife, who I made do that at the beginning. Uh, to my daughters, Kira and Daria, who are my real-life children, but were playing the roles of my previous work children, uh, Bill Landis and Ari Wasserman. I am not yet an empty nester in my actual house, but I am an empty nester on this podcast. So thanks to them, and thanks to my wife, Katie, who did not need... Uh, much prodding to come in the basement and yell at me. And that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>